0: As I was uh, heading over here and, and just in the short time before coming in to give the talk, I was noticing I was feeling quite, quite tired this evening and reminded me of a story that uh, my friend, Andrea, Andrea Fella, she was one of the teachers for the first, uh, the part one, uh, first half of the three months this year. And uh, she told a story of her, that she got from her friend, colleague, teacher Gil Fransdahl. Gil said that um, this, this uh, happened once when he was practicing living, I think, in a, in a Zen monastery at some point, and he said that his uh, teacher actually fell asleep while giving a Dharma talk. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I don't know how likely that is. Uh, <laughs> I know Gil said that he, he aspired to be that relaxed. <laughs> but, uh, if it, if it were to happen, it might save us all a lot of grief, I don't know. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, <laughs> but probably won't happen, but we'll see. <laughs> Since I've recently uh, decided that my criteria for giving a successful talk is if one person hears one useful thing, which has increased my chances of success exponentially, um, uh, maybe if I fall asleep halfway through <laughs> it'll still be okay <laughs> mm. I think Rebecca might have mentioned in uh, when she introduced us at the beginning of their treat that uh, Brian and I both live in uh, northern Arizona in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, we didn't do that we didn't consult one another <laughs> we We wound up there for quite different reasons um, I I grew up in Arizona, it's my home state, and I I lived in Flagstaff in the 70s, and I've just recently gone back there. And one of the, Flagstaff, it's um, in the northern part, in the high country, it's on the way to the Grand Canyon. It's uh, at 7,000 feet elevation, more than 2,000 meters. It's quite high, the air is very thin and clear there. And uh, and one of the reasons that I, I, that I really think I decided to move back and uh, base myself there is because it's, it's the air is very clear and it gets very dark at night, and the stars are uh, fantastic on the clear nights, uh, especially if you get a little little ways out uh, away from the, the streetlights, the the stars are very. Uh, they're right there, and there's lots of them, and I. I don't know how many of us might think of choosing where to live based on being able to see the stars, but for me it was a genuine consideration. It's something that is important to me. And and a, a, a night or two before I left to come out to, to join the retreat here, I was, it was a particularly clear night, and I had woken up uh, in the wee hours, or for some reason I was up when it was very dark and went outside for a few minutes to look and i i spent some time looking at the the night skies and i'm familiar with certain constellations and things but i saw um two galaxies there some there are a few galaxies uh, that you can see with the naked eye one was the andromeda galaxy and the other uh what's called the beehive cluster it's a small maybe it's not a real galaxy but it's a It's a bunch, it's a cluster of stars. It's right in the, in the center of the constellation of, of Cancer. And the Andromeda galaxy, I mean, these things are, you got to know where to look. And it's just kind of a fuzzy patch. But it's big. It's at least as big or bigger in terms of, of the amount of space it takes in the sky as the full moon. It's quite, quite large object you can see. It's uh, two and a half million light years away. It's one of the most distant things one can see with the naked eye. The uh, beehive uh, cluster is, is much closer, only 575 light years. And the, and it, the Andromeda Galaxy, uh, they estimate approximately one trillion stars are involved in this formation. Now, that means when we see it, we're seeing what it was like about two and a half million years ago. It's like this instant time machine. It it might not be there anymore. It it would be a long time before we knew that. Maybe it went away. (laughs) I I don't think galaxies go away easily, but it's possible that it's not there. (laughs) Even the sun. Sometimes when you're out in the sun, you know, it's about eight and a half minutes for the light to get here. It might have gone out one of these times. (laughs) You know, it's just not quite, didn't quite, information didn't get here. I warned my colleagues I was going to have a rambling (laughs) introduction to this talk. But starlight, it's interesting to think about light, starlight, this distant light and You know, what is light? You know, if you ask the scientists, they have a hard time kind of saying what it is. And and, uh, depending, you know, depending on how you choose to look at it, it behaves like a particle, or it behaves kind of like a wave. But it isn't either one of those. It just manifests behaviors that um, that can be seen in different ways, like the way we might perceive things in different ways. And, you know, it has qualities. There are things we can say about it. It has, um, it doesn't have any mass, but there's energy and there's momentum there. It moves very quickly. They say 186,000 miles in a second. Is that something like, I don't know, in meters it's a lot goes very fast and it and it can exert pressure, it does things, but but you can't find a thing either. There's not a thing there. There's no mass. There's not a a thing. You can't gather it. You know, like put it in what if you could get a some kind of container and collect it and then open it up and look in there. But so there's no thing there, yet there are these qualities and You know, it conveys information. It has this function of delivering information. Light enters the eye door and information is conveyed to us and the mind knows it. And the mind is like light in some ways because it's really hard to pin down and say what it is. What is the mind? You know, it's... There's not much that we could call a thing there. We can't, if we go looking, we can't find the mind as a thing. There's energy, mental energy, lots of that. We notice that in our meditation. But we experience mind as this process of, of contact, being contacted at our sensitive bodies and, and minds. And then there's knowing, and there's this process, and we, we can certainly be aware of that process. And, and this is mind, this is the nature of mind, this knowing, that's, that's mind, isn't it? This knowing process. It's not a thing. It's, it's nature. It's just a kind of natural process, happens, contact, sensitivity, knowing, this flow of that over and over again it's just it's just nature it's a kind of nature and it's lawful and and light is nature and it's lawful too it can be measured and and there are processes and effects and and things like that and things like the nature of light or the mind or or the distances and times and cause in the cosmos and light from these ancient gal- ancient light from the galaxies. Two and a half million year old light. That's what we see if we go to look. You can maybe see it tonight. It's between Cassiopeia and the great square of Pegasus. If you know where to look. It's kind of overhead, a little later. And, and we can't wrap our minds around some of these things, the speed of light or these kinds of distances. I'll tell another story. I was in San Francisco some years ago visiting a friend and and I went down to, it's in the middle of the city, but there was a block with these giant trees and and there was this big group of birds. There's a, a phenomenon called murmuration where a huge group of birds certain ones starlings will do it blackbirds where they they move in these these groups and they move like a like an organism <laughs> have you ever seen it it's incredible and sometimes thousands of them and it's like this cell pulsing and it will split and move and these birds were doing this dance in the sky and it was just a phenomenally and beautiful thing for me to see there was there were only a couple people who were looking at it, most people had their heads down and were looking at some thing, (laughs) a device or or something. They weren't... So one person was filming it, and someone said to me, they shouldn't be doing that, should they? Worried that it was a harbinger of some cataclysmic event or something. (laughs) I I don't know, but it's just unbelievable. I read an article recently. This is getting more rambling than I even thought it (laughs) would. I read an article recently. I want to go to Austin, Texas sometime in the middle, late summer when there are these... There's this one parking lot with some oak trees in it in Austin where purple martins gather before they migrate. And they estimate 500,000 of them on these few, few trees. I saw some pictures. You cannot see anything. You can see this pulsing bird shape, or bird, and you can only see birds. The trees are completely covered with these birds. I don't know how they do that. When they were doing this dance in the sky and then they split finally into two pools of birds and landed in these trees, and then there was this incredible, they were talking about it. And they just must, I figured they were just saying, wow, well, that was so cool. Look what we did. (laughs) It just was so great to do that. You know, something... But something about these kinds of images or experiences or even bringing these these things to mind and thinking about the, the light of the galaxy that far away and seeing deep into time and... And there's something about it that kinda stretches and does something to the mind, to our our everyday thinking mind. At least mine it does. It it brings a sense of wonder and curiosity and opens me to the something about the mystery of things, you know, because we think we know so much about everything, but we don't really know that much. And there's a lot of mystery. And it can take us out of our our often kind of limited and and somewhat self-absorbed world that we can kind of um, condense into. And we tend to live live on the surface of things in a certain way, appearances. And and as Rebecca was saying, in in the realm of concepts, ideas and what she called thought-based reality. And we take for granted so much of the time that this is the whole picture. It's like the idea that scientists talk about dark matter and dark energy, and they they say that something like, I think, I don't know, 70... that the stuff we can see and measure and look at, like you and me and toasters and and prairie dogs, all of that stuff makes up 5% of what needs to be there for the universe to function the way it is, and 70% of it is dark matter, and 20% is 25, or whatever, 25% is dark energy. What's that? What's that about? I mean, it's like, they just came up with the weirdest thing they could think of. Put it out there, yeah, people will go for it. Yeah, dark energy, I'm down with that. (laughs) They can't say anything about it except that it, for the universe to function the way it does, it has to be there. So there's clearly something more than our everyday minds tend to see. So I think, that, I don't know, it gets my mind to kind of stop sometimes and, and open to possibilities. And And the power and the beauty of meditation, the meditative experience, is that it, as we've been saying in different ways, it has the power, the potential to drop us to to a non-conceptual, direct experience of life. takes us below the surface appearances of things and all of our ideas about who we are and what the nature of reality is. And this can be healing and transforming for us to open in in this way. And it can uh, lead us to maybe Starting to see through, or at least open beyond some of the self-limiting ideas that are are often woven into the fabric of our perception in ways that we just don't see. And we're not aware of, and they're so in there that they just uh, color the way we look at everything. We don't notice how they operate, and we solidify ourselves and and the world through our ideas and beliefs about it, our perceptions, what we think is real, and It can be limiting and narrow things. And and meditation can open us to uh, a different way of of relating to life, a different kind of reality to the nature of things beyond our ideas or below our ideas about it. And it has potentially profound consequences, as, as I think we start to taste, and many of us know very, very directly and truly, can impact our understanding and, and the way we live. The, the, the famous Tibetan teacher Kalu Rinpoche put, put this some aspect of this understanding very simply and beautifully in one well-known quotation. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now this, this being nothing, the way he used this word, see we are, you are nothing. It's not some kind of non-existence or uh, annihilation or disintegration, but it's a pointing to this letting go of, of, uh, misperceptions or wrong views false views that bind us to a limited and i think limiting perspective what we're doing in in one way we can look at at the practice of meditation what we're doing here one thing is is we're we're observing nature we observe the nature of things. We're becoming directly, intimately connected to nature below our ideas. We internally, in our own body, mind, heart, in this process there, externally in the world, and we start to discover that that the same, it's all the same. It's all just nature. Mm. I think our modern life often um, leads us at times at least to feel kind of numb, closed down, disconnected, separate from other beings, from the world around us at times. And you know, we tend to speak about nature or the environment as, as something out there. We go out into it. I'll go spend time in out in nature as though it's it's something that we is separate from us other than us and and this leads to all kinds of problems but this mind and body they're not separate from nature this is nature we're an aspect of the landscape of the environment we come out of it we're supported by it we will return to it and i think some part of us knows this in some really deep way i think some part of us knows this and longs for reconnecting. has to do maybe with the, very directly with the, the embodiment and some of the things Orin was speaking about the other night. This is a, a short excerpt from something that D. H. Lawrence wrote. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me, that I am part of the earth my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There's not any part of me that is alone and absolute, except perhaps my mind. And we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surfaces of the water." Someone, somewhere I heard this quotation, uh, I think it may be, actually a misquotation from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, but I like it. So I'm not attributing it to anyone except it's not me. But someone once said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And there's something that I find very profound and true in this simple statement, because that's really, in a way, all we're doing here. You know, Everything that we can experience in our own body and mind in the world around us is just the unfolding of natural processes. And there's a way that meditation leads us to start to really see, understand, open to this truth. And, and, and we start to naturally let go of claiming any ownership of it. And there's a great relaxation that can happen with this. It's like we, we put down a burden that we didn't realize we were carrying. And and maybe this is something about the uh, being nothing and therefore being everything that uh, the Kalu Rinpoche said. We touch this fullness of being nothing because we are just an aspect of everything, you could say. We give it back to nature. I think Oren quoted uh, something from a, a book, uh, The Teachings of Don Juan Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda the other evening. Um, it was a very important book for me when I was in high school. It was my Bible at that time. <laughs> that one and a couple of, uh, subsequent books that he wrote, the first three books that uh, were written. And there's one passage that I'd like to read to you. It's, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It uh, touched me very deeply at that time, and it's it's stayed powerful in my mind over the years. This was uh, Don Juan speaking to Carlos, and he said, before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it, and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question, and when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. A path without a heart is never really enjoyable. You have to work pretty hard even to take it. On the other hand, a path with heart is easy. It does not make you work at liking it. For me, there's only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly." And I remember at that time in my life, teen years there in high school, and I I wanted so badly to somehow feel that, that I had, was walking on a path that had some heart and that I could walk it and look breathlessly. And I had this intuition, it must be possible, it has to be possible. But I couldn't find that any of the paths that were being offered to me at that time didn't feel like they, they had any real heart. They didn't have that possibility that I might walk them with this breathless sense of wonder or something there. And and I thought, there's got to be more to life than than what's being handed to me by the society and culture and all the conventional offerings for success and happiness. I knew, I had a sense it must be there, but I had no idea where to look, how I might find it. And maybe some of us have come to this retreat. Maybe we come to retreats because we're looking for a path that might have heart. And maybe some of us feel like we have found, maybe we've actually found one in this practice. There's another teaching, another passage from the teachings of Don Juan. Again, Don Juan speaking to Carlos and he, he said, "'Death is our eternal companion. "'It's always to our left at an arm's length, An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and fast. One of us here has to learn that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to those that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death now. It is at arm's length. It may tap you at any moment. So really, you have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have any time for that. Those are strong words. But they point to something very important. You know, we we actually don't have any idea how much time we've got left. None of us knows, there's nothing guaranteed. The next breath is not guaranteed. It's pretty likely, but it's not guaranteed. We don't like to think about this most of the time, but it's actually true. But maybe if we hold our death as a wise advisor, if we're careful, if we're skillful and careful, maybe it can help us to uh, find, to uh, actually encounter a path with heart, with a, a path with a potential to lead us to freedom, to a real kind of peace. I had my 59th birthday at the end of June, It's past June. So I'm, I think maybe I'm almost past being middle-aged. I'm definitely middle-aged. It's possible I'm in, I don't know where, where what, what, when do you get to be old? <laughs> anyway, there's no denying that I am middle-aged. Have been for a while now. You know, sometimes I think, well, how did that happen? You know, I was minding my own business, and suddenly, you know, I just can't get around this, (laughs) the truth of this, and, you know, sometimes it seems like only a year or two ago that I sat my first long retreat here in this hall. It's it's quite a while ago now, and, you know, I don't feel particularly middle-aged most of the time, you know, sometimes... When I get up in the morning, and if I look into the mirror a little too soon after getting up, <laughs> I mean, this is a bad idea at a certain point. <laughs> you know, you, you want to hold off on that looking in the mirror there. <laughs> let, let things kind of, you know, <laughs> the effect of gravity and, you know, kind of the mashing of things <laughs> overnight. And the hair, the hair is like a wave breaking <laughs> off to one side, and... You know the face is kind of like a wave breaking out <laughs> on one side so you gotta you gotta take your time <laughs> before you look in the mirror <laughs> it's a it's um it's hum it's humbling, <laughs> you know, and as I've gotten older the 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 sense of the passage of time seems to have sped up a lot, and you know the years go by so fast now it's incredible, you know it's just like. I remember when I was a kid, remember how long summer vacation lasted? Just felt like forever. And now the years are just like, whoa, another one. Oh, there goes another one. They just go by and, you know, the perception of time isn't fixed. And certainly as you may well know, a single meditation period can last a really long time. (laughs) And then, you know, a year goes by, a life goes by. And it doesn't matter how we feel about it they keep going the days keep going by and how are we spending our time you know we're here on retreat we've we've really thought about how we're how we're spending our time but even on retreat sometimes it's it's willing to it's 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 useful to if we're willing to really look and see how am i spending my my time am i really showing up for my life what will i remember as having been worth doing when I come to the end of my life. There's an interesting discourse in one of the collections where the Buddha quoted another teacher, which he didn't often do. This was someone named Araka. And the Buddha quoted him. He said, short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life, for none who is born can escape death and then he this is just an excerpt he gives this list of actually quite beautiful images to illustrate this he said just as a dew drop on the tip of a blade of grass will quickly vanish at sunrise and will not last long even so a human life is like a dew drop it will not last long and just as when rain falls from the sky in thick drops a bubble appearing on the surface of water will vanish and will not last long and just as a line drawn on water with a stick will vanish and not last long, even so, a human life is like this, it will not last long. And these kinds of reflections and things that I've been offering, and these quotations, the, the point of these is not to, you know, make us feel bad or create some sense of powerlessness in the face of our inevitable uh, movement towards the end of our life which is that's the direction <laughs> if you take birth that's that's the direction you're going and if if we hold these these kinds of reflections in a skillful way they can be valuable and they can connect us with with a kind of a kind of urgency it's a word in Pali Samvega. We have to hold it carefully, as I said, because it's not to create some kind of desperation or, or an unskillful sort of pressure in the mind and heart. But if we are willing to touch the truth of our own mortality directly, connect to the truth of life's brevity, the fragility of life, not in a morbid way, but in a way that m- might open us to the beauty and preciousness of life, incline us to want to make good use of our time, to examine our life and ask the question, what is worth doing? Am I here? Am I here for this fleeting life? Someone once told me that they were doing a practice, I think it's from a book called One Year to Live, by Stephen Levine, but um, it was a practice they were doing, um, where they were asking the question, how would I live if I knew I had only one year, if somehow I knew, had that, that framework for my life. It might be interesting. And I've, I've asked myself this question periodically over many, many years since I was actually quite, quite a bit younger. Sometimes I almost, I I would have this, I had this feeling, I kind of wish it was true. I think it would kind of force my hand in some way. (laughs) I'd have to really look at how I'm living, what I'm doing with my time. And sometimes when I would ask this question, I'd say, oh, it's okay. I wouldn't have to change much. And other times I'd say, well, Greg, you better look and see how, what you're doing. What are you doing with your time here? You know, so often we, we live as if we have all the time in the world. But I think a real relationship with the truth of our own mortality can actually be a source of great strength and clarity if we hold it carefully and skillfully. And, and maybe this is one reason why, why the reflection on death, on our own mortality, is considered to be uh, one of uh, what are called the guardian meditations considered to be a guardian, a protection for us to reflect on our own mortality. Our conditioning to avoid the subject is really strong, to fear it and try to avoid thinking about it. And there's so much fear around this truth. And, And we're afraid to think about it, afraid to uh, touch the fear that may arise in relation to these reflections. And, you know, we hide death and dying away in, in, in this culture, at least, for the most part. We, we don't want to look at it. We try to keep it out of our consciousness. We sanitize uh, the dead, dead bodies in funeral parlors a lot, you know, we try to make them look like they're just taking a nap attractive in some way, and, we, and we, in a way we treat death as though it's a kind of a mistake, you know? Something, as though growing old and eventually dying is a evidence of personal failure or, or a reflection of bad taste, you know? Like, as though if we had our act together, it wouldn't happen, you know? And there's a lot of commercials that <laughs> sort of, you know, promote this, you know, as though somehow we're optional. <laughs> And that if if it happens to us, it just is our fault, and we we blew it somehow. You know, and we turn to so much to avoid connecting with this, and you know, a lot of energy getting and having stuff and experiences, and turning to different kinds of transient experiences to to not have to connect with this truth, and and we can lose out on a lot if if. Um, where there's this unaddressed uh, fear and uh, inability to really connect in a real way with the truth of our own mortality. This is a poem called When Death Comes by Mary Oliver. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity and wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I love the line, I want to step through that door full of curiosity and wondering what is it going to be like that cottage of darkness? I mean, if nothing else, the moment of our death is guaranteed to be an interesting experience, an interesting event if we're actually present for it. If we can show up with awareness, with some acceptance and Balance of mind and heart, and and actually step through that door. Full of curiosity. Someone once told me a story. Uh, and I heard it from a teacher. I don't remember where I heard this, but someone who was living as a in a monastery in uh, Thailand, I think, and um, and there was a, a very old monk, who was getting near the end of his life, and and uh, at and he was getting really near the end. And he called this other, the person who told the story, called him in. He said, come, come. I think he said, come lie down with me. And he was able to describe the dying process <laughs> as his things began to change and, and some of the sense bases began to kind of shift and, and shut down. He was, he was able to, to say, now this is happening as he was dying <laughs> i mean can we even imagine that that degree of of mindfulness and equanimity present but that's a real possibility it's a, it's, a, it's a possibility and in a real fundamental way i think we can see that the practice in a way we can hold it as a preparation for this time of our life and and this time this moment could well be an incredible opportunity for us for letting go, for awakening. But if we're living with uh, a fear of death that, that we're not willing to, open to, and look at, an unacknowledged fear, maybe, if we start carefully, gently to open to that, to face this, we can start to uh, unravel, maybe see into some of our conditioning, bring things to the surface that we've been unwilling to look at or face, and and start to let them go and see their nature impermanent and empty. We can st- start to broaden the scope of what's possible for us in the life. And, and maybe we won't find at the end of our life that we've just simply visited the world. And a meaningful relationship with our own mortality brings us directly into relationship with the impermanence, very directly. That's what that's about. And, and this goes to the heart of what the Buddha taught and all that we've been speaking about in different ways and connecting with opening to understanding impermanence is stressed so much throughout the suttas as the doorway to understanding, to insight, to freedom. The whole path seems to flow from a real relationship to the truth of impermanence. And the classic description of the moment of awakening and stream entry, the stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus, that which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. This insight into impermanence often pointed to as, as that awakening. I think we're really lucky to have this place to practice and to be surrounded by the woods and meadows and beautiful countryside here. The woods are a great place to uh, investigate the teachings of impermanence. You know, trees can teach us everything. The whole dhamma right, right out there. Trees can teach us everything about change. And, and trees, they're born due to causes and conditions. They live, eventually die. It's just natural, just the nature of things. And, you know, if a seed falls to earth, the conditions are right, then it sprouts and there'll be a little baby tree, seedling, a baby tree, a sapling, it'll grow, there'll be a mature tree over time. We walk in the woods and we see all these stages of of life in this way, little seedlings and small trees and saplings and mature trees and old trees that are losing their vitality and those that have already died and fallen down and, and new ones coming out, sprouting right out of the the old ones, right up through them, out of them. And it's just the way of nature and it's, it seems so beautiful to us. It seems so right, if we notice it at all, just trees. But they're, they're teaching us the Dhamma all the time, anytime. Just unfolding there and, and, you know, we're no different. We're like trees, we take birth if the conditions are right and we live. We take nourishment like trees, body grows, sustained by nourishment. The bodies are changing, you know, trees they lose their leaves and new ones come. We lose hair and skin and nails and all the cells. Now the scientists say, I think it takes about seven years, you get a whole new body from cells dying and new ones coming. I think that probably slows down as we get older. (laughs) Maybe we don't get a whole new one anymore. But, you know, I get parts of it. (laughs) Some parts just say, I'm tired, I give up. I'm going to stop doing that. Reproducing that way. But, you know, who are we? We we get a a whole thing brand new over, slowly over seven years. You know, we're just the same as all of nature and all things internally, externally having arisen, subject to change, passing away. It's this constant flow this constant movement I think out in the woods you know we we open to the beauty it brings joy it op- opens the mind and heart often and and there's a sense of harmony it feels right and all the changes and all the the uh, the the impermanence that's just there in front of us all the time it's it's so beautiful and we're it's healing for us to spend time there and we aren't in contention with things and and it feels right. But when it comes to ourselves, you know, we often feel it's not, it's not right. It's a mistake. We should be able to avoid this flow of change. And, and with the body and mind, it's in a state of constant change. I mean, how many births, lives, deaths do we experience in a single day? <laughs> Just a single period of meditation. It's, it's that flow taking birth into a moment and then it passes away. There's nothing we can keep or hold in that flow. It just changes, it slips away. You know, we can't hold on to any of it. And and, you know, we try, we try to hold on, don't we? Different ways we, try to grasp onto things, but it just keeps slipping away. It's like trying to hold on to moving water or a stream or something. It just keeps flowing by. Sometimes it's like holding on to a slipping rope. It hurts, you know, we get rope burn. There's only one solution if you're getting rope burn, that's to let go. And somehow, in my mind, this is directly related to, to where we take refuge. Bhante spoke a bit about uh, re- the refuges, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and the opening night of the retreat. I think it's really important to look where, we're, where we turn for safety, for this sense of refuge in this world of change and unpredictability in light of our mortality. You know, trying to hold on to any aspect of this flow of change is, it's like taking refuge in something that is unstable, not reliable. Any, any particular thing in that. We're, we're placing our hearts on, on something that isn't, just because of its nature, it's not reliable. And it's, it's kind of a setup for suffering for insecurity. But we can take refuge in wakefulness. Buddha is wakefulness. This word Buddha, root, wake, to be awake. I like thinking, I don't know what a Buddhist is, but the Buddha wasn't one of those, by the way. He wasn't a Buddhist. Maybe we can be awakists. Buddha means, bud means awake. I can, I can be an awakest. we take refuge in, in the truth of how things are, the truth of the moment. You can always know that. So taking refuge in wakefulness in seeing the truth of things, that's possible no matter what's happening. That's always, that is a place of safety. It's reliable. It doesn't matter that everything's changing. We can, we can take refuge in awareness itself, in the knowing mind that can hold anything, that can know anything. We start to trust awareness and we see that there's an aspect of awareness of the knowing mind that isn't affected by, by what's known. We see the awareness of fear is not afraid. The awareness of anger is not angry. And Awareness can hold anything. And if we find a refuge in this, in this, in awareness itself, and, and we start to open to a truth, because it's just an opening to nature, it's, we find it's, that's always there. The truth is always the truth. It doesn't come into being. It's just nature. It's always there. There's a, so there's a wisdom that is there in the heart already. It's already there. It's always been there. It already knows the truth. This is uh, from a book called Awareness Itself. It's by uh, Ajahn Fuang Jotiko. You just have to keep being observant of the mind awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions of the conventions it holds to be true. So you just have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away and eventually you'll reach your true refuge within, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. Well, I'll read. We have time for, uh, I have two endings. I'll give you both. That was ending one. (laughs) That was good. I could, I should stop there, but I'm not going to. The next one's at least as good, though. This is uh, from Ajahn Chah. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. How's that for an instruction? Do not be a meditator, do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha has taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's just the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. So we'll just have a a moment or two of quiet now. Don't be a meditator. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. When you sit, let it be. Thank you for your kind attention. And we have about uh, 35 minutes for some walking and then uh, come for the chanting if you would like to. It's We're getting good at it. So please be welcome for that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.